Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Gentlemen, this man needs help. Well, I certainly hope this little incident hasn't put you off flying, miss. Statistically speaking, of course, it's still the safest way to travel. friend. Bye. On May 27, 1995, Christopher Reeve, the six-foot-four actor best known for the strapping physique and all-American good looks that landed in the titular role of four Superman movies in the 70s and 80s, mounted his horse for an equestrian competition in Culpeper, Virginia. The 42-year-old Reeve, a Juilliard-trained thespian, had taken an interest in horses after first learning to ride for a role in a film adaptation of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina in 1985. Although allergic to horses, Reeve took antihistamines to overcome the issue, and what started as a hobby quickly turned into a real passion, culminating in Reeve buying his own 12-year-old thoroughbred horse named Eastern Express, which he nicknamed Buck. Reeve had big plans and took his training very seriously. He worked steadily in film even after the last installment of his Superman films was released in 1987, scoring roles in period pieces like The Remains of the Day in 1993 and horror films like John Carpenter's Village of the Damned in 1995. Still, it was clear that his passion had shifted to equestrian riding. This was just a training level event featuring 300 other riders, but Reeve hoped to improve enough to participate in the preliminaries the following year and potentially continue progressing through the ranks in the highly competitive equestrian world. The event that day was called a, quote, roadblock test, and featured a series of obstacles for the horses and rider to jump over. Serious riders spend many hours mapping out the best approach to tackle a course, taking into account things like their riding proficiency, the caliber of the horse, and field conditions. In this case, the most challenging jumps were numbers 16 and 17, so Reeve and others focused their attention on those. Few of the riders paid much attention to the third jump, a routine three-foot-three-inch fence shaped like a W that most experienced equestrians saw as little more than a prelude to the more difficult parts of the course. Of course, even for the simplest jump, the one variable that cannot be entirely controlled in equestrian sports is the horse itself. As Reeve approached the third jump, Buck suddenly and very abruptly stopped in his tracks. Horses, especially thoroughbreds, are massive creatures that can weigh upwards of a thousand pounds even without the extra weight of the rider. They have to generate a tremendous amount of power to lift that kind of mass through the air and safely over an obstacle. And when that kind of momentum is suddenly stopped, it can lead to catastrophic consequences, similar to someone slamming on the brakes in a moving car. In this case, the force propelled Reeve forward over the horse's head. With his arms still entangled in the bridle, Reeve was violently tossed to the opposite side of the fence, landing head first and immediately losing consciousness. The impact of the fall crushed his C1 and C2 vertebrae, the bones that connect a person's neck to their head. Reeve was transported via helicopter to the nearby University of Virginia Medical Center and taken into the emergency room. His life would never be the same again. 
Overnight, Reeve went from headlining major motion pictures to being a quadriplegic who required round-the-clock care with a team of 10 nurses and aides. Everything most of us take for granted, even down to breathing on our own, became a pronounced struggle requiring arduous and intense therapy sessions. While he would courageously soldier on and even become an advocate for disability rights and research initiatives in his subsequent years, Reeve would pass away as a result of complications from his condition less than a decade after the accident. Christopher Reeve was just 52 years old. I'm Derek Kaufman. I'm Jason Beckerman. And this is Last Days, Christopher Reeve. Reeve remained heavily medicated and barely conscious for the first five days in the hospital while a team of doctors worked to get his medical situation stabilized and under control. When he finally regained consciousness, Reeve was informed that the impact not only crushed his first two cervical vertebrae, but also severely damaged his spinal cord in that region. As a result, doctors informed the actor that he had been paralyzed from the neck down and rendered unable to breathe without a ventilator. In an interview with Barbara Walters, Reeve reflected on the dark thoughts that crept in during those first moments of learning his condition, thinking about how his injury would be a burden to his family and wife Dana, and wondering whether it might be easier to just let it slip away. I know it went through every member of the family's mind. How can he live like this? Someone like this, how can he live like this? But once he was in the ICU and I could just be near him and next to him and, and look at him and touch him, because then I felt, well, I haven't lost him. He's here. When I first was coming out of, you know, and you have the thought, maybe it's not worth everybody's trouble. And I had that thought for maybe 10 minutes. That you wanted to die, pull the plug, whatever. Yeah, I suggested maybe I should just check out. And Dana said to me, You're still you, and I love you. After seeing his children and realizing that the essence of him remained intact, he didn't suffer any brain injury as a result of the accident, Reed resolved to have all the necessary surgeries and maintain that he'd never considered euthanasia again after that. The initial operations just to survive were incredibly complicated. Most importantly, Reed needed a surgery to repair his neck vertebrae and essentially reconnect his head to his body. The nature of his injury has been described as a closed internal decapitation, Essentially, the internal structures that connect the head to the body had been destroyed and needed to be repaired. The surgery was performed by Dr. John Jane, who used wires and bone from Reeve's hip to fit between the shattered C1 and C2 vertebrae. A titanium pin was inserted to fuse the wires with the vertebrae, and then holes were drilled into Reeve's skull to thread the wires through and secure the skull to the spinal column. After the successful spinal surgery, Reeves spent the next five months at the Kessler Rehabilitation Center in New Jersey to continue his recovery and tackle the next major obstacle of his recovery, breathing and mobility. Jason, on the breathing front, Reeves severely damaged what are called the phrenic nerves in his accident. And those are the nerves that carry the signal for the brain for a breath to be taken. We take this for granted. We just breathe in and breathe out. But there's actually a nerve impulse that goes through your body that says, hey, it's time to breathe again each time you need to take a breath. In his case, the nerves no longer receive those signals from the brainstem to initiate the taking of a breath. As a result, he was unable to breathe on his own without a ventilator connected to a tracheostomy tube in his neck. So we go back to his thoughts in the immediate immediate aftermath of the accident to whether or not it's should he should soldier on. I can't imagine. I mean, it's obviously an impossible decision, impossible to put ourselves in that position. But 
the idea that you are confronted with not being able to breathe on your own for the rest of whatever time you have, which is not necessarily, you know, as we know now, was not going to be that long. Right. I, I can't even imagine going through the deliberations of how you want to live, whether you want to live that life in that condition. And he felt that so acutely. I mean, those moments when he was with Dana in the aftermath, when he regained consciousness and he's having these breaths shoved through yes. him, through the ventilator, he's considering, I'm going to be a burden. He's a very cerebral guy. Yeah. And, and, and he always was a Juilliard trained actor. I yeah. mean, he was a guy who, who was heady. And so he realized this, but when he saw Dana, Dana said, you don't have a brain injury. You know, right. you can live with this. The essence of you is still there. It's just your body the, has completely The failed. quadriplegia is one thing. It's the lack of the ability to breathe on his own that would be so taxing. He knew to himself, obviously, to his doctors and to his family. It's just that inability to, to do for yourself the most basic function of life really is what I think was most traumatic for him. I think that's right. And by February 2003, this did get better. There was an experimental procedure called diaphragm pacing via laparoscopy that threaded wires with electrodes into his diaphragm, that part at the bottom of your lungs that, you know, causes you to hiccup and so forth and, and, and creates the, the urge to breathe. And it allowed him to finally breathe somewhat on his own. Over time, with lots of therapy, he retrained those breathing muscles, and he eventually developed the ability to breathe on his own for about 90 minutes at a time. And you'll remember there were lots of videos early on of, of, of Christopher Reeve after this accident when you could see him hooked up to a machine that was pushing breath so that he could, so that he could speak. That did get a little bit better over time with this surgery. He also regained, and I found this fascinating, the ability to smell because the tube in his throat that was uh, he was using to breathe uh, meant that he was not taking breaths through his nose. And if you don't take a breath through your nose, you don't smell. smell. So it didn't dawn on me that one of the other... And no smell, no taste. I mean, No there's, taste. There's, yeah, I, I dealt with this during COVID. I, you lo lose your sense of taste. It really saps your ability to enjoy life right. in a lot of meaningful ways. And he just couldn't smell for a number of years. And I'm sure that had all the consequences it has with eating. But as I said, you can hear this struggle in the in the old appearances and interviews, the air puffing through the ventilator, creating pauses in his ability to communicate. And his voice was always thin and strained from those breathing difficulties. This was a guy who in Superman had a had not a booming voice, but a big, full, rich voice superhero style. And it was always different after the accident. On the mobility front, uh, the long-term solution was this electric, quote, sip-and-puff wheelchair. And you'll remember seeing videos of, of Christopher in this device. It involved him essentially blowing air through a straw affixed to a contraption that sent signals to control the wheelchair. Because remember, if you can't use your arms, he's not using a joystick. Those breath signals are what propelled him through the world. He would exercise four to five hours a day uh, using special machines that stimulated his muscles to prevent atrophy and osteoporosis, which are side effects of quadriplegia. And he also believed that the physical therapy could regenerate his nervous system. He was a very hopeful guy. And over the years, he did regain the ability to make very small movements with his fingers. And by 2002, he reported uh, being able to sense hot and cold temperatures over 65% of his body. So there really was, he was sort of an experiment in very high profile quadriplegia case. And he had the best therapy, the best doctors, and he did regain some nerve abilities over time. But living with his new limitations also took an extreme mental toll on the once strapping and vibrant Reeve. Although he resolved to live on after consulting with his family, as we discussed, the accident and the dramatic changes to his life thrust Reeve into an intense period of grief and depression. He credited his chosen profession of acting with giving him the tools to persevere through suffering, saying, quote, nobody wants another actor. 
There's too many of them now already. To keep believing in yourself in spite of those kinds of obstacles is certainly good preparation for what I'm going through now. So basically he was saying, look, if you're an actor, you deal with rejection, you deal with heartache all the time. And he's saying that actually steeled my, my ability to deal with this. He also leaned heavily on his faith, re regularly attending Unitarian services in the years following the accident. Reeves said, quote, spirituality is found in the way we live our daily lives. It's not so hard to imagine that there's some kind of higher power. We don't have to know what form it takes or exactly where it exists. Just to honor it and to try to live by it is enough. Prior to the accident, Reeve did not identify with any religion after a brief dalliance with Scientology in the mid-70s, but he really did take on this Unitarian faith. And Unitarian is the loosest brand of Christianity, but he did have Well, it's an acceptance of all people, all religions. Just to, he wanted some spirituality. It, it's impossible to, again, put yourself in his perspective or in his shoes and, and see things from his perspective. And it was important to him to have faith in a higher source. And that's Absolutely. what he found. Another way Reeve was able to cope with the profound mental and emotional toll of his accident was by channeling his energy into disability activism and related causes. And that's sort of what I think a lot of people remember him for is the tremendous work that he did on behalf of other disabled people. Overnight, Reeve became the face of spinal cord injuries. The incessant media coverage meant that he could shine a spotlight on a cause in a similar fashion as Michael J. Fox did after he was diagnosed with Parkinson's. In 1996, Reeve gave speeches across the country, hosted the Paralympics in Atlanta, spoke at the Democratic National Convention, and even made it onto the cover of Time magazine in August of that year. He also tried to pass a bill to increase the cap on insurance payments for catastrophically injured people from $1 million to $10 million. That bill didn't pass, but he used his platform to pass other important legislation, such as extending disability benefits after people return to work. He also chaired a foundation with his wife that aimed to speed up research to improve the quality of life for people with disabilities. To this day, the foundation has given more than $65 million towards research and more than $8.5 million in quality of life grants. He also tirelessly lobbied to expand federal funding for stem cell research, which was a hot-button issue during George W. Bush's administration, given the anxieties over cloning and the connection to abortion issues. Millions of patients just like me will be watching with great concern as you continue your important deliberations. Everyone I know of, including the scientists you'll hear from today, opposes the cloning of babies and the pursuit of reproductive cloning. But every leading scientist seeking cures calls for stem cell research to advance. His frustration with the politicization of the stem cell issue led Reeve to seek treatment in Israel in 2003 where some of the most cutting-edge research on stem cell therapy was being conducted. I wanted to pause on this. You know, there was a path that Christopher Reeve could have uh, just shrunk from the limelight. He was a very, very famous person. He had money, and he was able to have all of these therapies. But he really became a thought leader, and the stem cell issue was huge. You remember this. I do. I mean, stem, cells are, <clears throat> stem cells are derived from aborted fetuses. That's the traditional way that you know, fetuses are aborted. You can extract the stem cells. One of the, as far as I know, I don't know that much about it, but that's where stem cells are extracted from. So because abortion was such a hot topic issue at the time, there was a lot of it, sort of the, the political divide dictated where you were on the issue of stem cells. And George W. Bush, who was a Pro very conservative, socially conservative person, right. had had sort of uh, trepidations about moving down this path using stem cell research. And he was very, very outspoken. I always thought that was quite brave because, you know, Christopher Reeve, the way he looked publicly was so different than when he was Superman. And rather than sort of shrinking from the spotlight, he really just leaned into this yep. uh, to 
to sort of uh, improve his own life and improve the lives of others. And I thought that was a, a pretty critical part of his recovery. Although he publicly soldiered on with this condition, Reeve suffered mightily behind the scenes with his treatment regimen. On several occasions, he would have these adverse reactions to certain medicines designed to reduce damage and promote repair of his spinal cord. One drug caused him to go into anaphylactic shock, and Reeve claimed he had an out-of-body experience at the time. Recalling the event in his autobiography, Reeve said he had the sensation of leaving his body and looking down at his lifeless corpse while doctors and nurses worked on him, saying, quote, the noise and commotion grew quieter as though someone were gradually turning down the volume. He ended up waking up after receiving a large dose of epinephrine and later did stabilize. In October 2004, however, Reeve received treatment for an infected pressure ulcer that caused a bout of sepsis. Pressure ulcers are common with paralyzed individuals. It's from not moving. It's from being basically bedridden. You develop these ulcers on your body. Bed sores, another way to Bed sores is another way to think of them. But this was much more serious. After his son's hockey game on October 9th, Reeve went into cardiac arrest after taking an antibiotic to combat the infection and ended up falling into a coma. He was taken to Northern Westchester Hospital in Mount Kisco, New York. And just 18 hours later, on October 10th, 2004, Christopher Reeve died at the age of 52. No autopsy was performed, but doctors believe that an adverse reaction to the drug was what caused his death. His remains were cremated and a private memorial service attended by more than 900 people was held at Juilliard just a few weeks later. We'll go ahead and take a break. More on the legacy of Christopher Reeve when we come back. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including Ray-Ban, Good American, and Ulta. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals. During Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th, the cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for apparel and electronics, and you can save on everything you need for the summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Just go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. Rakuten, R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Talking about Christopher Reeve's film legacy without mentioning the Superman movies in the first breath is a bit like doing a Daniel Radcliffe biography and burying Harry Potter in the third act. But Reeve was actually quite an accomplished actor before those movies ever came out. Before graduating from Cornell in 1974, Reeve was trained at Juilliard by film legends like John Houseman, the guy who won an Oscar for The Paper Chase, and was considered a highly touted up-and-coming actor from a star-studded generation of talent in the 1970s, including Kevin Kline and Patti Lapone. He and Robin Williams were the only students selected for Juilliard's advanced program and actually became close friends developing their craft. Houseman famously told his students, quote, it is terribly important that you become a serious classical actor, unless, of course, they offer you a shitload of money to do something else. The words proved to be quite prescient. In his early career, Reeves dabbled in Broadway, taking the role of Catherine Hepburn's grandson in a play called A Matter of Gravity. He received favorable reviews during the play's year-long run, and even developed a close friendship with Hepburn for a time. There was a rumored romance between the two of them, which Reeve shook off in his characteristically humoristic way by saying she was 67 and I was 22, and I thought that was quite an honor. I believe I was fairly close to what a child or grandchild might have been to her. But it was clear with his sly wit and classic good looks that Reeve was destined for the big screen. 
The role of Superman was an absolute game changer in his life. There's no two ways about it. But it's important to remember that this wasn't just some cash grab by the studio. I wanted to contextualize it a little bit. It was the late 70s when films could really merge artistic vision with the commercial dictates of big studios. Just think of movies like The Godfather. It was a it was a blockbuster and an Oscar winner. You had Rocky. It won Oscars, and it also had lines around the block very famously in the 70s. So you could do this sort of big, big movie, but also have it be artistically credible. It was just a, a very heady time in film. Richard Donner took the comic book material seriously, and he had already cast decorated actors like Marlon Brando as Superman's father, Jor-El, and Gene Hackman as arch-villain Lex Luthor. Reeves' approach was to modernize the Superman character to reflect society's changing standards of masculinity, saying, quote, Now it's acceptable to show gentleness and vulnerability. I felt that the new Superman should reflect that contemporary male image. He wanted to base his portrayal of Clark Kent on the boyish, aw shucks charm of Cary Grant's character in Bringing Up Baby, and somehow convinced the producers and Donner to cast this skinny, six foot four, classically trained actor to play the Man of Steel. I wore a big, bulky blue sweater because I thought, oh my God, I've got to look stronger, you know, and I knew I was skinny. I'd been sitting around, hadn't been exercising. I mean, I get out and play tennis and stuff, but I don't in any way do body stuff. So I got the biggest Shetland sweater I could find up in my attic. And went to this audition with it and sat there sort of, you know, sort of trying to be, trying to look bigger, you know, and everything like that. He immediately got to work transforming his slim physique into a more muscular body befitting a superhero. He added 30 pounds of muscle to his 189-pound frame. And I must say, I, maybe it's men of our generation, but when I think of movie Superman, I still always think of Christopher Reeve. And I'm not sure if anyone has ever filled those shoes as ably. What do you think about that? I wanted to pause on this discussion because I know we're we're older. We're men of a certain age. So I was thinking about it. His body type is so different than the modern superheroes, right? The people now are Hulk and and Thor and just huge dudes. And he was slender. I don't know if he ever lifted a weight. He looked lean. I mean, he added all this muscle. But he looked lean in like a not particularly hard and lean kind of way. He was just like a dude, right? Yes. A tall dude and a handsome, super handsome, but just a dude. I think that he ha- his legacy has benefited from the fact that the subsequent Superman movies really haven't been very good. Yes. And the actors are not very memorable. And I'm not meaning to disparage them. Uh, They're whatever. so serious. His was a bit winking. Uh, yes. You know, he had the little curl. Well, he would not break the fourth wall. But So the Marvel movies that came after, lo- you know, really carried on that legacy. The DC movies, which include the Superman movies, have not. They're they're dark and gloomy and 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 sort of you know not as good for that reason. But he was the winking Superman, you know, and he was the guy that carried on the legacy because the Superman on the television show from the '60s yeah. was also a little bit winking. It was also a little bit fun. And then the new DC in the DC universe is so super. They're so dour. And yeah. I wanted to pause really quick. I'll, I'll move on from this. But the muscularity, you're right. He was lean. There's no two yeah. ways about it. And he had that blue suit and the little spit curl. And Henry Cavill is a much stronger yeah. guy. But I always thought, why does it matter? Superman's an alien. His strength is not relative to his muscle size. Yeah. It, it is just strength of an alien sword. Well, tell that to Thor. Exactly. Yeah. I, they, don't, they don't need <laughs> these muscles. These muscles are for humans. And all this hard work really did pay off. The original Superman ended up grossing $300 million worldwide, unadjusted for inflation. A huge amount of money. It's a billion-dollar blockbuster in, today, in today's world. And Reeve received positive reviews for his performance. He even scored a BAFTA award for most promising newcomer for the role. The movie spawned two sequels within the five years of its release, but it started to lose some steam by the third installment in 1983, which starred Richard Pryor and assumed a more farcical and less sincere tone than the first two movies. It's time for Superman. Alexander Salkine presents Christopher Reeve and Richard Pryor in Superman 3. 
This time, Richard Pryor has come to Metropolis. Oh, I'm sorry. And he's got something to sell. <laughs> he's the best con man and the world's greatest computer genius. Let me tell you something. I can't ski! But then he falls. For a scheme to turn the ultimate computer into the ultimate weapon. The movie, directed by Richard Lester instead of Richard Donner, was a relative bomb after the success of the first two, bringing in relatively paltry $80 million on a $40 million budget. Reeve vowed he was done after Superman 3, but agreed to reprise the role of Superman 4 just four years later on the condition that he'd have partial creative control over the script. The fourth installment is pure 80s trash in the best sense of the word bringing in a plot about the nuclear anxieties of the Cold War, similar to what Sly Stallone did with Rocky IV about the same time. On a budget of just $17 million after the previous flop, however, the film just couldn't deliver, and it ended up becoming the lowest-grossing Superman film to date with just $36 million at the box office. And with that, Christopher Reeve's run as Superman was over. But Reeve never stopped acting and tried to get back to his roots with more serious roles after Superman, including playing a disabled Vietnam veteran in a Broadway production called Fifth of July. To prepare for the role, Reeve was coached by an actual amputee on how to walk on artificial legs. He had a handful of acting roles, including a well-received performance in Sidney Lumet's Death Trap with Michael Caine, but nothing could approach the level of stardom he'd experienced as Superman. And by the late 80s, he was convinced his career was basically over, after reading for but failing to land the role that Richard Gere landed in Pretty Woman. So can you imagine that? Would have been a quite different, different movie. movie. <laughs> Absolutely. He's a, he's a more sincere actor, I think, than Richard Gere. Not to take anything away, but Gere is a more wink and a nod at the camera kind of guy. I agree. And it's sort of so, so boyish. I mean, yeah, you know, right, like right. Richard Gere has a little bit more gravitas. But anyway, just when things seemed bleakest for his professional career, Reeve landed a role in The Remains of the Day. It's a 1993 instant classic starring Anthony Hopkins that became a critical and box office success, and it garnered eight Oscar nominations. This kicked off a bit of a resurgence for Reeve, who started receiving scripts for big shows from the early 90s like Picket Fences and Chicago Hope, and was even offered a deal to potentially launch his own television series. But Reeve declined the offers, instead using the momentum from Remains of the Day to land roles in John Carpenter's Village of the Damned and an HBO movie called Above Suspicion, in which he played a paralyzed police officer. His tragic accident would occur less than one week after the premiere of that movie. It's almost too obvious to note that there's always been a tragic irony that Christopher Reeve's signature role was the living embodiment of timeless vitality, incomparable strength, unimaginable speed, and pure invincibility. And yet his last decade of life became a symbol of human frailty and the fickle cruelty of fate. And yet Reeve was able to persevere and transform his life after the accident and inject a new sense of purpose into what seemed to most observers like a hopeless situation. And I think that resilience was due in large part to his core sensitivity and vulnerability, something he always wrestled with while portraying the Man of Steel in such a memorable way. Although best remembered as Superman on the big screen, Reeve was a multifaceted and talented actor with the range and ambition to play a wide variety of characters. Indeed, after his Superman days, he tried to break out of typecast and take on different challenges, something he later reflected on in an interview with Oprah when talking about the last role that he played before his accident, which ended up showing how real life is so much messier, but also so much richer than anything in a movie script. And so I wanted to give Reeve himself the final word. I remember the last movie I did, I played a paraplegic. A movie called Above Suspicion, and I went to a rehab center. And I worked with the people there so I could simulate being a paraplegic. 
And every day I'd get in my car and drive away and go, thank God that's not me. And then seven months later, I was in this condition. Um, and I remember, in a way, the smugness of that, um, as if I was, you know, privileged in some way. But the point is, we're all one great big family. And any one of us could get hurt at any moment. So uh, that taught me a really big lesson about complacency. Mm -hmm.